0: Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader, or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Pokes. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am delighted to have someone who's uh, become a good friend. We met on the Help for Heroes bike ride uh, through the big battlefields of northern France and Belgium, uh, where he's a phenomenal ambassador for Help for Heroes. He's got a great story, which I hope he will tell us later on of the, uh, the tough times he went through and how he's bounced back. He's built like a house. I mean, the strongest, muscular guy I ever come across. He's on a cycle and he's pedaling away, going up these hills. I don't know how he does it. Overtook me at the speed. But Nick, it's great to have you here uh, on the podcast. Welcome.
1: Hi, Jonathan. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Great, great to be here.
0: Yeah, well, it's great. So, Nick, just tell us a little bit about where you're working now. You, you know, since uh, since leaving the forces, because you've you've been to the Defence Academy. You were. Uh, uh, um, if I remember a major in the Queen's Dragoon Guards, but had a horrific experience and uh, got, uh, got um, injured very badly, which I, I'd like to talk about later on, if you don't mind. But just tell us a little bit about, about yourself and your career, just maybe uh, a thumbnail sketch.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. So uh, yeah, Nick Garland, I, I now work for a company called CDW, a large technology company based out of London. They're an American company, but we work uh, in the UK as well. And I head up there, secure government and uh, defence part of the business. Um, previous to that, as you mentioned, I was in the army for 13 years. I joined the Queen's Jagoone Guards, commissioned into the Queen's Jagoone Guards, where I spent many happy years uh, travelling the world, meeting new people, and doing uh, some fun stuff, some interesting stuff. And uh like most jobs, some mundane stuff as well. Uh, and as you touched on, I was uh, unfortunately medically discharged due to an injury that I sustained very early in my career that did eventually catch up with me. But great times had many new friends made. And uh, now I'm in my uh, second phase of career.
0: Yeah, well, well, we're definitely Nick going to talk about uh, about that uh, horrendous time you went through because you you draw many lessons from it and and have an incredible view on life but it must have been very very tough but talking about inspiring leadership which is the theme of this podcast and you certainly inspired me when you spoke to us all about what you'd been through and why help for heroes was such a great charity that you are an ambassador for um helping the helping the wounded like yourself um But yeah, talk about a couple of leaders. You you mentioned Gordon and you mentioned Oz. Would you tell us who these two people are and and what qualities they have that you have found inspiring? So I've I've worked for Gordon, General
1: Messenger, uh, and also um, I've I've heard Oz speak, met with him a number of times. I'm fascinated by where he's going with his uh, insightful business. Uh, I worked general messenger back in 2009 as a very junior subaltern he wouldn't have known who I was at the time but I was one of his many that deployed uh, to Afghanistan as part of the op herrick three Commando brigade commitment um and it just so happened that I ended up meeting uh the, the then or the now general uh in a place called headley court um many months after my deployment and um Inspirational leader, brigade commander at the time, uh, fascinating, clear direction that then st- stemmed down through his organisation, working with the Royal Marines. Great to see a very different part of the military doing phenomenal things. And everybody had a good word to say about him. And then when I was fortunate enough to meet him in Headley Court, uh, his approach to, uh, and I say this uh, as it's intended, the boys uh, on the ward at the time, because it was mostly men on the uh, intensive care ward there, Um, It was like an aura had arrived and everybody was uplifted by his presence. He just understood his people so very, very well. And he was personable, intimately personable with them, which had a huge uplifting impact on the recovery process, the mentalness, sorry, the mental robustness of the team. And actually, that didn't just last momentarily. But for weeks and weeks after his visit, there was a positivity amongst those that were in on the ward at the time. Uh, and, and just a, an incredible man, clear direction and went off to do phenomenal things uh, during the NHS's sort of COVID crisis.
0: Yeah. And um, I'm just trying to work out what he's doing at the moment. Is he governor of the Tower of London at the moment? I think
1: so. Yeah, I think yeah. so.
0: Yeah. And and uh, I, I met him uh, at Windsor Leadership um, in Windsor Castle at one of the events and just... Because this podcast is listened to people at 130 countries around the world and thousands of people listen to it. A number are from different forces, uh, military forces around the world, and an awful larger number are business leaders, CEOs, C-suites and the like. And so they're always interested in hearing these stories, but also how does that translate to me in business? And you know, his qualities... He's an inspirational leader wherever you find him. He doesn't have to have a gun in his hand or people think, oh, it's just he's in the military and people do whatever he says because he's a, a senior officer. People would follow him regardless because he just has those qualities, don't you think?
1: Uh, you've hit the nail on the head there, Jonathan. I think it's his his personable skills. and so some You know that you're in the presence of an inspirational leader or a leader when they walk into the room and they... I would say command the floor but they raise the attention of everybody in the room and people almost stop what they're doing or they listen and uh they become captivated in the presence of said person uh, and general gordon had had that very much about him which is un- almost certainly why he was selected to go off and do uh, the nightingale hospitals and everything else that he went on to do during the hs where we had a, a moment of crisis in the country needed some clear guidance and uh, he uh, he delivered it so yeah fascinating
0: Fantastic. So tell us about Oz Alassi as well.
1: So I met met Oz in America um, last year, and Oz is a former British Army officer uh, with a phenomenal career uh, of his own. And he then went on to set up a company called Cybersafe. And Cybersafe do uh, internet security or or cyber security for people. And and they put people first in cyber technology. And, And as we all... I think as we are becoming more and more aware that technology is, an, is, is more of an actor when it comes to or an enabling act, activity for cyber crime, uh, Oz's organization that he founded uh, is, is there to set it up. And the way that he did, uh, sorry, is there to um, combat the human element of cyber crime. And, and the way that he presented a very difficult, often technical challenge to a huge audience in America was one of clarity, understanding, but also bringing it back to first principles that everybody in the audience understood. So Oz is a great guy, and, and if you can, John, you should very much get him on the podcast.
0: Well, it would be lovely to have him on, and particularly when he's helping people, individuals who are the victims of cybercrime, because everybody thinks it's sort of oh, it's it's corporations they get attacked. No, 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 individuals get their identities taken. They get their life savings uh removed them. So I think that's going to be very important. Uh and and good news with this business side safe, safe. Um, and they're talking about businesses. Um, you're in your wife's office, and uh people listening won't be able to see, but those on YouTube will. And you've got um the quartermaster store behind you of your wife's uh fabulous stuff that she has on her interior design business. What's it called for those who those people who need her skills, Nick?
1: It's uh it's quite awkward actually so we we have a separate office from the house and and i had to message before i came in here and saying actually i I need the office because my office is uh doesn't isn't so well laid out and so light and bright as this but my wife's company is katie garland designs and she looks after contemporary interiors based out of wiltshire um but yeah as you can see it's full of um full of the nicety things of of homes and yeah
0: well i i hope that katie is it katie and katie garland interior designs i hope yeah. I hope it. I hope it goes well. It goes from strength to strength. So, um, she must be a special lady to stand by you, particularly uh, when you went through your horrendous injury. So let's let's go into that, Nick. You know, there you were serving, I think, in Afghanistan um, in the turret of your armoured vehicle when all hell breaks loose. How would you like to tell us the story? Because I think it is an important story. Do it in any, whichever order you want, but um it's an important one for us to hear about and learn from
1: so i will uh, i guess i'll set the scene and then we can talk about sort of as i refer to it my bad day in the office Uh, and i try and align trauma or challenge with we all we can all relate to trauma and challenge and and we all have our own traumatic injuries or sorry our traumatic experiences because trauma doesn't necessarily mean something significantly bad physically or but it can be something that lasts with an individual f- for a significant amount of time. And, and therefore my, my bad day in the office was in 2009 uh, in a place called Musakala, uh, which was in the Northern part of Helmand province. And I was there under the auspices of, of uh, deploying with the Queen's Tribune Guards under three commando brigade. Um, and at the moment at that particular moment in time, we had just taken over from a uh, another unit that was in theater at the time. And we were there to hold, um, hold the enemy line, all, effectively hold the enemy line so that the district centre of musakala could be secured by uh, the host nation, the Afghan national forces, and provide a ring of security. And, and we were effectively that outer ring of security for the for the local population. Um, it was about, I can't remember exactly the right time, but early in the morning, uh, so just after first light. And um, as was often the case, uh, the, the, the enemy were set to uh, to challenge us um, militarily and they did exactly that and they 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 launched a sort of a full frontal attack on the on the compound or the building uh known as a patrol base uh during that tenure uh that we were stationed in um and we effectively like um we were we were almost there like i say bees on honey but we were there to draw the the enemy into a position where a lot of the reconstruction and, and up, uh, capacity building could happen behind us in the safety of the ground uh, to further to our north at the time. And, and we'd been in combat for, I don't know, 45 minutes or so when uh, some very accurate enemy fire came over. I was on the roof of the compound with a, a colleague of mine, well, a number of colleagues of mine at the time, and uh, rocket propelled grenades, um, RPGs flew over the top. Some fell short, one hit the building, and one air burst just right in front of us, probably about a meter and a half, two meters away. Uh, shattering, and they're designed to shatter um, as a grenade would um, in the air, and of course it's flying uh, at a huge pace. And so when it when it shatters, it fires bits of molten metal across uh, a vast area. And, it, and they they got it absolutely right, and they covered the roof with um, shards of uh, shards of metal. One of which, uh, size of a 50p piece, hit me. Uh, one of one of which hit the, um, the uh, squadron sergeant major, and another one hit the javelin gunner off to the left, uh, causing a bit of havoc um, during our early office
0: call. Wow. And, and that piece, I think, if you're watching, you've got a mark there on your neck where it went into your windpipe. Is that right?
1: That's right, yeah. Um, it, it looks a bit, for those that can see, it looks a bit like a, a tracheostomy sort of scar because it went in just below my Adam's apple. And it went in uh, down my windpipe because I was in the prone position, so lying down. Uh, it went down my windpipe through my thyroid through my artery and, uh, and into my left lung and it was um, it was well I say expectedly, but actually at the moment in time it was very unexpectedly hot inside uh, in, inside my chest as obviously it had burnt its way through so yeah it made a bit of a mess inside, had an arterial bleed uh, which then led to a significant amount of um, significant amount of blood loss
0: and if I remember it on the Kazovac helicopter, which getting into this kind of war zone in helicopters to evacuate you out, uh, you, if I'm right, died twice on the helicopter on the, on the way out and they had to resuscitate you.
1: That's what, that's what they, uh, that's what they told me when I woke up. Yeah. Um, It's uh, it's, I don't remember a huge amount about uh, the helicopter ride home because I sort of slipped into unconsciousness um, between getting off the roof of the compound and then finding my way back or making my way back through the incredible Kazavat chain, which, which had so many positive people uh, that, that got me home all the way back to Birmingham um, a number of uh, weeks later.
0: Because that was what stuck me in your story was just your recognition of all the people along the chain and the amazing job that they did to save your life and the lives of other people, and I'd like you to come on to that in a minute. But before we do, I'm curious to know what happened to your squadron sergeant major and the javelin gunner. Did they live? Were they killed? What happened?
1: No, they both they both lived, uh, and they're both in in good health now. Uh, squadron sergeant major went on to be a late entry officer, and I think he's uh, he's recently left the army. And a couple of years afterwards, the um, the, the team medic uh javelin gunner who had received at that moment in time a, what appeared to be a very small fragment um of of RPG into his side and, and I like I'm told it was the size of sort of your small fingernail, tiny little puncture wound, um, but went in and, and unfortunately went through uh both small and large intestine and, and made a huge, a huge um I had a huge impact on his well well being and and his life going forward. But he now works uh, and and lives in Wales um, and and ha- like most of us, has started a new life um,
0: many years ago. But but this is the thing in in meeting you, Nick, um, and and just as you were powering along on that cycle, and, and as I say, you've you've looked after yourself. You've got yourself incredibly strong and fit, and and then to see this um, this power you could put in this, I would not have known that you'd gone through what you're about to tell us about. So I think there's a lesson for me and maybe others listening is that never judge anybody else you meet. You wouldn't know if you met this chap of, you know, small Nick the size of your fingernail that had gone in there and caused all those kind of problems. And, you know, you meet people, you do not know their story. If you meet my brother who got stabbed um, by uh a person who's there's a court case going through with the whole thing. A person who broke into his house and stabbed him. You wouldn't know what my brother had been through, and and so I think it's just a, a lesson. You've got to get to know people, understand their story and the journey that they're going through, and and just I think at the the moment, just to acknowledge as we're recording this, Neg, uh, some horrendous attacks by Hamas onto Israel with you know, uh, outside concerts where they were just masking everybody, people being killed, and then their pictures being put on their own Facebook wall, and uh, just atrocities and people being taken as hostages back into Gaza. I'm just, uh, you know, your heart and mine, I think we've discussed this earlier, goes out to those families and those people and all that's going on. And we hope that, that that whole situation can calm down and be resolved. But I don't think it will for a long time. But this is another war and you were in a war so let's just go back to to you in this situation so so you were going back down the chain of command about the, the medical chain rather what happened next nick and tell us what happened then
1: um i mean huge amounts of stuff happened around me and i think that's that's probably what i'm going to come on to shortly jonathan is i was blissfully unaware most of the time of what was actually happening uh, and and i say that with a positivity that that will never be forgotten is the system is so very good and it's the same for the NHS as well and and I know that they get an awful lot of hardship but but the system is so very good when it works and it works so very well but I was um injured and they have the uh there is a sort of a golden hour that you have to be back to a primary medical care facility within an hour or your chances of survival uh change significantly I was so very fortunate that by the time of which I'd realized that I'd been injured um, and, and it did take a couple of seconds for me to, to realize. Um, within probably 20 seconds, I'd, I, I had seen a medic, and, and she ultimately had gone on to provide that immediate trauma care, life saving care. Uh, I then also went on to, to meet various other people in the chain. And, and I'll talk about those uh, separately. But ultimately, I'm blissfully unaware, I woke up in Celiac Hospital three and a half weeks later. Uh, to find myself slightly disappointed, A, that I was in Birmingham, nothing against Birmingham, of course, uh, but I wasn't where I had intended to be. And um, I needed to get back on the road to recovery. And Mm. and that was my main effort, was, was getting selfishly at that moment in time was about me getting back to where I had been to go and do what I needed to do with the guys that I was there with at the time.
0: And that in itself must take a phenomenal amount of resilience, determination, when you are so uh disabled by your injury and and you're you're down to not just zero you're down to minus 20 and you've got to work to get up to zero and then get back to the incredible place you're at where does that determination and drive come from that you know was it was it your upbringing was it your parents was it you know where does this come from i know as officers we've got a lot of drive and determination as many leaders have but what gave you that that fight back I don't think it's anything I've really
1: considered. Um, it, it small stages, small steps. Um, I came from a military family; both of my parents were in the were in the Air Force, um, and I, I had a very good, normal upbringing. Um, and uh, you know, my my sister and I had a, a very normal life growing up, which was great and full of fun and lots and lots of love uh, from a strong family, which was really, 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 really good. Uh, in terms of getting better and getting back to work I think for me it was there was it was a false horizon I I was never going to walk out of the hospital bed and go I'm off the doctors knew it my then girlfriend now wife knew it my family knew it but everybody said oh yes sort of a little bit sarcastically oh sure you'll be fine and the reality was it was I couldn't walk because I'd been in bed for three and a half weeks. So I had to learn to walk again, had to learn to wash again, had to learn to self-sustain. And by knocking down each and every one of those sort of targets, it was, oh, I can, and I can, and I can. And before too long, I realised that actually, well, on, sadly, on doctor's advice, when he said, you know, you, you don't, you shouldn't be leaving the hospital at this stage. Well, I, I signed myself out, not, not the smartest thing I should have done. Um, I got home and came crashing down to earth. And the reality that my poor girlfriend then uh, struggled with, didn't struggle with, was hugely supportive, but I was was not fit and capable of being at home, but managed to get myself up and about eventually. And I then ended up walking to the local surgery, uh, which was about a mile and a half away from the house on crutches. And I arrived as you would do in any normal surgery in the UK, There was no fish tank in this particular one, but you can imagine lots of people of a certain age in the surgery on a Tuesday afternoon or whenever it was, and in comes a guy who's just come off lots of morphine, full of sweat, on crutches, and said, "I need to see a doctor because I've um, I've just been shot in the neck in Afghanistan." And the surgery stops and says, "Well, why why are you here? Well, because I need to see somebody twice a day for the next four or five weeks until my packaging and my neck gets better." And so walking to walking to the surgery twice a day it was a thing i had to do it i did it uh, again lots of love and support on the periphery that enabled me to do it um and that was a that was a mentality um and huge setbacks along the way um but
0: equally you just keep pushing and, and you keep making it happen wow nick uh, i'm just i'm just taken by that i mean you know on the crutches walking to the surgery um you know uh, so many of us complain about little things in life, you know, ah, this is how irritating I'm stuck in traffic. You know, I mean, uh, I think uh, with my brother, David, who died of cancer a couple of years ago, he'd do anything to be stuck in traffic. You know, he's not alive anymore. And, and, and you fought back, you came back, but of course you lost so many of your colleagues as well, who were killed and are not alive anymore. How do you, how do you sort of come to terms with that? And, the grief of of uh, of losing soldiers and colleagues and people you know in the army who were killed on operations.
1: So um, on on, on Nine, uh, when I when I came home, I, I was very fortunate, and my my recovery was focused on me and, and getting me back to work. And and thankfully, um, for for me and my immediate unit at that time, I, there was no there was no loss on on that particular tour. Wow. Um, Fast forward a few years, um, and in between my first and my second tour, um, people that I knew at Sandhurst had had sadly died um, from Sandhurst, uh, had sadly died in Afghanistan. Um, and I think the, and again, on my second tour, uh, some colleagues also uh, also died. And it was just so very, the realization of warfare kicks in when death is final, injury is temporary. Uh, Injury is temporary until it becomes a permanent injury, and you live with it. Um, But death is 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 final and it's ending. Mm. And uh, one of the many many things that stands out, and which I'm sure everybody in Camp Bastion will, uh, or those that were in Camp Bastion will remember, is is going to those uh, repatriations ceremonies and and the the solemnness, the loneliness, um, the sadness, the realization of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, and that. That, that stays with you, and that stays with you for life. Um, and we reflect in November on on those days.
0: Yeah, and and of course, everything that everybody's given, you, the injury that's changed your life, others who've died, um, and, and the commitment that people in the armed forces make to an operation to a country, which then, of course, now we're no longer there, and the Taliban are back again. How do you come to terms with all the sacrifice that's gone on and then it's all just thrown away.
1: I don't, I don't, I don't look at it as that we've thrown it away. Uh, My my three tours of Afghanistan were there to make the lives of those of the population better. And Mm. I think at the time that, that we were there, um, we did, we did exactly that. And Mm. I think um, through hardship comes good eventually and, and, we're in a cycle. And, uh, you know, I can't really comment on what's happening there now, because it's it, I, I struggled somewhat with when we left Afghanistan, uh, and the way the manner in which we did as a a coalition or a Western world. um, Because I think we were so very close to, to, to breaking the backbone of uh, a society that was actually making huge, huge head headway in developing and Meeting young men uh, and very young girls uh, there that were positive about um, were positive about their futures, and that was really what it was all about: is creating positivity for for the future generations. Um, so to see where it, see where it is now, it, it saddens me, and I'm sure it saddens every uh, veteran, both in terms of everybody that's been there and seen where it was going and where it is now. Um,
0: yeah, difficult. Yeah, time. no, I, I think that's a it's a very healthy. Uh, where we just had Willows just joined the podcast, my little uh, black uh, working cocker, who uh, is a bit a bit starstruck about being on YouTube. Um, I, I think that's a very healthy and a very positive view of the contribution that you make. And there's many things outside uh, outside your control, which you have. You know, you do the best you can do with what you've got to make a difference to the lives of the people who are there to bring order and peace to a country. But you can't decide what's going to happen to their their future and and how history will turn, as we're seeing around the world right now. It's a very unstable time, whether it be with Ukraine and the Russian invasion there, or whether it's with what's going on with Hamas and Israel and battles in Africa and all around the world. Um, So, Nick... um, it It's one hell of a story. Who, who do you want to particularly call out who really made a difference to helping you and the lives of others? Maybe just and then we'll uh, go on to uh, some other experiences in life and things like that. but who who do you want to particularly call out?
1: Um, I mean, I can, I can name I can name names, but I think actually it's it's more than naming names. It's more about roles that people fulfill. And for me, there were a number of stakeholders that that were central to to me first of all. My survival but then also my recovery and that's that's the, the family immediately obviously um but also it was the the medic the stretcher bearer the door gunner the pilot who flew on no fuel to take me home it was the intensive care nurse who bed bathed me for three and a half weeks it was the doctors the many doctors that looked after me um and it was then my support network my peer groups my friends my family um all of which played a vital part uh, in self-development of me and also getting me back onto the road to recovery and then ultimately getting me back to to full health and work.
0: Well, no, thank you, Nick. It's lovely the way you acknowledge this. And, and if you can draw any lessons, if you can, out of such a horrendous experience of the life-changing injury that, that you received in in war, what would the lessons be from all that you've been through and how you brought yourself back from that very, very dark place?
1: I think for me, the, 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 the darkness of the, the place that I found myself in was, was not actually selfishly on me. It was the impact that my my journey had had on others. And still, in some instances, does. And, and we talk around post-traumatic stress and, and all of those other things. I've been so very fortunate that I haven't suffered uh, directly on that. But I know that people on my journey, when I say my journey, the injury that, that I was part of, uh, have been part of that. And they've mm-hmm. they, they've had uh, some some intrusive thoughts and some difficulties there. So I think in realizing everybody has their own story, and everybody mm-hmm. has the and you touched on it earlier, Jonathan, but everyone has their own story and, and never judge that book because what impacts you in a positive or a negative light might have a different view or a different understanding from the from the person that's seen, witnessed, received, heard, whatever it may be. Uh, and I take that through into my into my working life now is is we all have past experiences that influence future decisions and and understanding those enables us to get the best out of people so
0: yeah, yeah. that's that's a really good good one and and now you're, now you're in business um and in a, in a an american tech company and I, I work with a number of american tech companies um what have you found in bringing your skills as an army officer uh, and a leader into into business what what do you find is transferable in the sort of skills that that they look for that you bring with you
1: I'm not a technologist, ironically, uh, and I'll probably get shot tomorrow for saying so. But but the reality is, I I believe I'm a people person, and, and I try and get the most out of people. And if there is one unifying thing within a military, military or military leadership cycles, or business, or or charitable or third sector work, it's it's people always will will make or make or fail a, a business and an organisation. And so getting the best out of people, and everyone has different motivators, and everybody has different mechanisms for what they view success to be like. And if you can make the personal, professional, and organizational successes in that, in in my view, in that logical flow, personal, professional, and organizational successes, then people will be suitably motivated in the workplace to deliver the best outcomes for themselves. Mm that uh, professional development and then for the organization as a whole uh, uh, to collaboratively achieve more
0: yeah no it's a, it's a lovely way of looking at it and i also um i'm thinking about you know our upbringing and how we, you and i both came into the army we both uh i think uh we, we uh been to grammar schools um or i think the local the local school rather than yeah. Uh, yeah. with some of our fellow officers um they were from you know certain public schools and there was a little bit of um, one-upmanship going on in that environment, but you came through that. And both of us um, are dyslexic, if I remember. Um, and so just, we had to work that much harder. Um, and you also, I think, had a period of, was it ME you had, which really wiped you out? Yep. Was that right? Do you want to just tell us right, about, yeah. about both those?
1: Well, I think dyslexia, Probably when you and I were um, either diagnosed, Uh, I was formally diagnosed and my parents put me through that sort of system whereby I had to go and do a load of psychometric tests and it came back that my score, whatever the score was, said that I was dyslexic. Um, Was very welcome news because my parents understood that I struggled with certain things. Um, Now there are some amazing, uh, there's amazing awareness and actually there's a great group on LinkedIn um, where they, they call out dyslexia as a superpower. And I, and I kind of, I'm slightly biased, obviously, but I kind of agree. I think it offers a different way of thinking. And there is a, you know, there's a hashtag dyslexic thinking because people with dyslexia may not be able to simulate letters in the right format that creates comprehensive sentences, but might view challenges in a different format than others and see solutions to problems that others don't see. And I think it's a really powerful tool when utilised. And I think there was even an advert from... From one of the sort of wider, broader government agencies saying we are recruiting dyslexics. What a what what a great shift in it used to be seen as a, a negative and it's now seen as a positive. So um, yeah, I think we were we were part of a generation where maybe earlier in our lives it was a it was a challenge, but now you know the gen, the children of today are, are better set up for it.
0: Yeah, there's a lady called Kate, I've forgotten her surname. That's uh, right, yeah. Who uh, writes about it on LinkedIn and been on many stages and interviewed Richard Branson, people like that.
1: That's um, right,
0: yeah. No, fascinating. Um, and then, you know, you had um, all these experiences. Look, looking back to when you were 16 to 18, if you met the young Nick Garland then and all the experiences that you've had uh, now, what would you say, this matters but that doesn't matter. What would be your your tip to a young man uh or a young person now, 16 to 18?
1: I think it, it it's also come after my injury as well. It is sort of the highlight of I'd probably say yes more. Um it's I'd I'd go as simple as that, Jonathan. I'd we we are offered both in, in certainly in our childhood, um, offered so much in the way of education and uh development and opportunity and whether that's you, you know physical or mental or, or musical or whatever it is uh I'd probably have said yes more um mm. and it's very easy to be comfortable and no is a comfortable word when you're saying it because it closes off the opportunity there and then where it closes off the challenge to the opportunity there and then and I think if I uh, if I can pass one thing on to my children it's the mm that they should really think about saying yes a bit more sometimes we don't like to say yes but actually the longer term we've enjoyed or we've benefited from it so mm. that'd be more simple simple advice
0: that's great and how old and how many children do you have i've got two i've got a 6 and a 9 year old 6 and 9 wow that's a that's a that's a good challenging age for them to be uh and but the nice thing is at least you can chat to them we've got some grandchildren who are living with us for the last year um grace and riley and one and a half and two and a half and grace is now chattering away to us papa what you doing what you doing? can i help can i help and uh, which is really sweet and and riley just goes papa and and just uh, but but we can't get much else from him at the moment but you could already see him developing it is such a joy to have children i've got four children of my own and they've um they're all now married and uh, i'm sure there'll be more grandchildren on the way who knows um let's go around the inspiring leadership compass. Uh, You you probably had a look at this, Nick, and just some of the top tips that you'd share from your experiences that you've had. Um, Firstly, the moral question, you know, what, what do you, what have you done when you let your values, your principles that you've been brought up on, or you've been trained at like me at Sandhurst, you know, we don't we're never perfect we're always there's moments when we let it slip it doesn't kind of work out what do you do to bring yourself back on to true north how do you how do you do that
1: i think corrective behavior calling it out I, and I, there was an example many years ago in in my former service life where i let something go um within my chain of command i saw it happen witnessed it brushed it under the carpet thought, thought it would never come to the fore just so happened a similar event happened later on and i was sort of called in and um, did you witness anything, oh, Mr. Garland? No. Uh, uh, well, actually, yes, I did. And then it just, you, you start to question your, to your point, the moral compass. Why did I not do it then? It was probably because it was a difficult thing to do, but actually it would have been more beneficial for the the, the, the here and now, but also for the future. Uh, so if there's a wrong, write it uh, and, and write it as quickly as possible. Uh, so it doesn't grow arms and legs and, you know, both both in business and in life
0: yeah no so it's, it's, it's very true and i think when people call out you know we've had we've had cases of uh pop stars or personalities whether it be jimmy savile or whatever people sort of know when things are not right but they think oh it's someone else must be doing it it's not me it'll it'll, it'll be somebody else and and if we're a bystander we're condoning it it's always a, a, a trickier one i find um purpose questions is the next one meaning and purpose um clearly when you were in the army you had a clear sense of meaning and purpose a very clear sense of meaning and purpose but what gives your life generally a sense of meaning and purpose
1: i think it's uh, as you say in a in a former life it was very 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 clear to me because it was sort of part of your day-to-day activity and and in the in the now um it's making, I think it's got to be about making the lives of those around me better. Uh, and that's most critically for my family. And then, uh, for, for those of my immediate, uh, group, whether that's friendship group or, or business group, um, and then society as a whole and noting that you have more influence on the, those around you immediately than you do on society as a whole, but making positive steps, um, without going too far one way to the right or to the left, where you can make a difference and that would be a legacy for me would be you know that i made a positive difference whatever it was being and, and made memories yeah
0: that's, that's a great one nick and and i'm next on to health uh now clearly uh you, you've had to make health such a big part physical health mental health getting yourself back from such a a, a traumatic uh almost uh, certainly life-ending injury um what's your tip to people listening about you know health well-being nutrition sleep that kind of stuff because you've studied this quite quite uh seriously and we've had some good discussions on this topic what's what would be some of your tips to people listening
1: i think that i mean they they go hand in hand mental and physical health go in in my view they go hand in hand and i'm I'm not absolutely not well um read or, or haven't overly studied it but as part of my my personal recovery and also the recovery of those around me earlier in my life uh, made sure that physically you have to continue to move and and you know whether you have that on your iphone or your iWatch now that says stand up move and everything else that goes with it that's fine we understand that movement is key but actually think about what the positivity is of that movement where you're going and how you're going to do it because raising the heart rate I know, Jonathan, you're an advocate of exercise, um, and I wish I could do more, as always, but I try and get out three times a week and and raise my heart rate, whether that's cycling or running or or whatever else it is. And I think the two of those go fundamentally hand in hand, and we don't do enough of it. We don't allow enough time in the working day, and I know that there are some organizations that actually promote and and enable fitness in the workplace as a positive factor. And I think you'll get more from your your workforce if you do. and then nutrition really not want to really not want to preach on this unfortunately um because I think like like most of us enjoy uh the best and the worst that that both food and that food and drink can give us um but I do understand that there's a balance you know life is a balance in everything that you do and uh if if I indulge more in one than the other then I have to go and pay the, pay the compass uh in in terms of exercising it out the next couple of days but
0: Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd recommend to you and others listening, uh, if you haven't come across it, uh, an app and an organization called Zoe, Z-O-E, and they look at your gut microbiome. And I I did mine about a year ago, and my wife, Lee, has now just gone through her test day yesterday um, where she eats these uh, cookies, which are then creating blood sugar. And she's wearing a a blood sugar monitor, continuous glucose monitor, and it looks at the impact and it starts to record that. Then she takes her blood um, and then she takes uh, a, a sample from her gut stool sample as they say and they're all sent off and then you get back you know what your your sugar response is like what your what your uh, blood glucose response is like and also how healthy or unwise your, your gut is so it, I find that whole area fascinating and um I, I was down at the Sanger Institute um, a couple of days ago for Professor Sir Mike Stratton's sort of celebration of his time as the director there but just the the work they've done to crack the dna code and your biology and the fact that they will be able to do a sequence of your whole nick garland's whole dna very soon so that you'll know what is likely to lead to cancer and death and what you can act on early because uh, as with anything it's best to work upstream and become the national health service rather than the national sickness service which is sadly what we've become at the moment, with uh, trillions of pounds being spent on people later in life who didn't look after themselves. Um, my,
1: on that, Jonathan, sorry to interrupt. My, my grandmother, who lived to 105 and died last year, wow, uh, a, a phenomenal lady in, and in good health lived at home until her final days. Um, she insisted on a tot of sherry uh, and probably in her late 90s would have a Guinness, I'm not sure that that's what the National Health Service would have prescribed, but but she lived um, a good and healthy life. Uh, yeah, but yeah That
0: that is an amazing story. And uh, there is no doubt there's a sort of mixture of some genetics, um, like you, you clearly have got longevity in the family. So congratulations. Uh, my uh, father, while well, he was killed at age 33, flying uh, for the Navy uh, out in Changi when his uh, plane had a fault and caught fire and he saved. The lives of the pilot who should have flown it and the life of his co pilot but he he sadly was killed but he would have uh he had a good chance to living to I think my uh his twin my aunt is about 94 now and going strong um so there is that but uh, but also um alcohol is you know you're drinking ethanol and I've actually I've actually given up alcohol now I've, I've sort of given it up a couple of times for periods of about six months or so. And uh, while on holiday, I, I, I took a break and had a, a couple of glasses of Prosecco, but I just found it pretty unexciting. And so I've gone back to uh, no alcohol because I just, when I start looking at, I wear one of these whoop straps, which records your health and well-being, And when I look at the impact of alcohol on my sleep and on yeah. my heart rate variance, it's, it's a negative impact for me. So I don't particularly like it. The army tended to sort of have a culture where it forced us all to drink heavily and um and and uh, you know you're not a real man unless you can drink massive amounts which i just dis- i disagree with um eq uh emotional intelligence uh i th- i found in your ability to connect with all the people when we were in france wh- whatever their backgrounds whether they were corporals in the military or other uh injured servicemen or civilians who were raising funds or whatever it might be you had a great ability to connect with different people um how, how do you listen well to people, Nick? What's your skills in listening?
1: I think if you ask my wife, um, I have very few. Uh, but the, the reality is um, I, enjoy, I enjoy talking. I enjoy talking to people and understanding a bit about them because I learn. I learn from people and I think we learn from each other. We often forget that we, we when we read and we listen and we hear and we do, we learn but also we learn so much from other people. So um, I enjoy talking to people because I find conversations often captivating, interesting, uh, and try and get the best out of people by in, uh, embracing them in often, sometimes, deep conversations of areas of interest to them. Uh, and it then builds a bond and, and a mutual connection. And it's finding those mutual connections, which I think is the is the exciting bit, is, is finding a subject matter, chatting about it, and then the difficult part is remembering it next time you see them.
0: Yeah, but that's the fun yeah. of it. But, uh, but uh, it is a real skill that you have. I just want to acknowledge that. And I think uh, when I look back at my mother, when you know I was told I was thick and I was going to become a dustman by my teacher because I couldn't spell and I couldn't um, read very well. My maths were appalling. In those days, they didn't have tests for dyscalculia, which is a problem with numbers or dyslexia. So I just was left thinking I was thick until I was in my 30s. And I only did a a, a sort of amateur test about the dyslexia but I think I notice in dyslexic leaders that I meet they do seem to have to as my mother said to me you'll be good with people it's almost like she was saying to just change your focus a bit from worrying about being academically so smart um and I did notice that in you that you, you you are interested in people's stories and lives um Resilience, goodness! If a man who has resilience is around, I would turn to you. What would be your top tip to people about resilience, Nick?
1: There's lots spoken about taking one more step, and and lots of leaders have said just take that one more step. And you, without taking that first initial step, you're never going to get to to the end of the whatever it is, road marathon, hill, whatever. I think that that's really quite obvious, but it's setting yourself. Realistic goals. Um, setting yourself realistic goals that you can actually achieve, because with that comes the sort of the mentality, the positivity of success. I and mean, nobody likes to be a failure. And and I think there's for every two steps forward, there's one step back, and we all know and understand that sort of that thought process. But when we're being resilient in terms of recovery or or progressive, uh, whether that's goal setting in work. Or, or its physical recovery or mental recovery. It's setting a goal, short, medium, and long term, and then sticking to it and delivering against it. Mm. Uh, difficult sometimes to do, easy to today, and therefore we break them down into monthly, uh, into smaller snippets, and make them manageable, bite-sized pieces, if you will. For some, so.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really a, a good tip, and and you have to have a discipline to keep going. I mean, I just think about. Um, I'm training with an app called Muscle Builder. I want to put a little bit more muscle on in my old age because sarcopenia is a problem as you get into your 60s and 70s that your muscle wastes away. And so I've worked hard to put a little bit of weight on a bit more muscle, but it requires uh, a good workout routine, personal training, that kind of stuff. But I, I use the app when there's no personal trainer just to discipline myself to do that exercise that day and it's great you've got this sort of uh this avatar doing these exercises and they come on you could do it and this kind of stuff so it keeps me going um brand i mean you you're a very good motivational speaker nick and i think those listening if you want a good motivational speaker and one hell of a story get nick in your organization uh to to uh, to to share with people in business um what it means to to do that but what have you learned from 360? Is there is there an area you need to work on in 360? Have you ever had any 360 recently in, in CDW? I haven't had one recently.
1: Um, and I think it's it's a really interesting, interesting tool for 360. Particularly because you can you can uh, s- subordinates will tell you what you want to hear. Those above you might give you the honesty that you you think you already know. I think from from my side, I think focus, trying to do too much too soon, too often, and therefore not necessarily delivering the outcome that you set yourself or those have set for you. And I think we're all we're all party of that uh, party to that in in life is we all want to do too much, and maybe that's part of the makeup of sort of success is I want to do everything and I want to do it brilliantly and I don't want to delegate all of the tasks. So I think um, there's a little bit of the old mission command analysis that we use, but yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a really good and somebody, um, in one of the tips that I was listening to, I think it's a might have been Oliver, um, Berkman in his book Four Thousand Weeks. You know, from if you were to live to eighty, Nick, from birth to eighty, you've got four thousand weeks. Now I'm sixty one, about to be sixty two next March, so I've got about nine hundred weeks left. If I'm to live to eighty, I've got nine hundred weeks left. Now, that's very finite. Now, as it was, my brother, he got given 10 weeks notice that he was going to die and bingo, he'd gone. So so I think this really brings home. You cannot do it all. You know, when you're in your coffin and you're about to croak it, your inbox says you've got email and, and there's always stuff to be done. And and I'm finding, I'm just uh, preparing a report on a CEO, a very impressive individual, but one of the things that in the report that was written about him and the psychometrics, his ability to be really focused on a few things. And in in this book, or the tip that I thought was really quite counterintuitive, but very clever, write down the 25 things that are really important to you that you really want to do. Take the top five. You could even, I'm a big one in top three. But, but certainly if you want to squeeze yourself, give yourself a couple more. But say take three to five and put that in a specialist. And those are the things you're going to focus on. Then take the 20 or the 22 and don't do them. Do not do this. Have someone working with you not to do those things because they take, they steal your time allocation. It's not about time management. It's about time allocation. And you cannot allocate time to it all but if you do those three things supremely well, might be like in my case, I want to be a good husband and a good father and a good grandfather. You know, that's that requires time to be allocated. I could work all hours, I could work late in the evening, I could work weekends and not be around for them. But have I, you know, you know, how important is that? How about that as a challenge to your system? Uh,
1: that, I mean that that is a really good and simple way to put it, Jonathan. I um I think well, I I particularly am a slave to the inbox and, and don't need to be because it it takes focus away from the the big ticket items whatever they are um I think we've all we've all learned post sort of working from home COVID the change in the way in which we work is that we we need to be accessible more often for those around us but also for our working lives and our working lives and our home lives are now maybe becoming one which often presents a bit of a challenge so yeah, I think that uh, having a space, having a mental yeah. and a physical space to do those functional tasks, whatever they might be, is a, is a really good waypoint and something that I'll take away.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, my wife and I had a lovely holiday, 10 days in Greece recently, just, just got back about a week or two ago. But it's so easy in the last day of the holiday, you're starting to switch to work mode and then you're back and there's a lot to be done and you can easily undo all that wonderful connection you had with your wife, your children, whoever it might be, your partner, and be back in completely focused and too intense. So it takes extra effort when you're back in the grind to keep a special connection, and that's a good reminder to me. Um, Legacy. Very briefly, what's yours, but how would you help people to work out what their legacy is going to be?
1: I'm forty. I don't know what my legacy is yet. I think I've still got significant time to put in to make a legacy. I, I'd love to say that I've made, as we said earlier, uh, improve the lives of those around me um, and uh, make life better for them, whatever that may be. Um, but I would I would urge that those that, certainly I'm a mentor for a few people in, in my company, but also I- externally is identify key facets, key deliverables they want to do in the in the medium to long term. And this is not short-term work-based activities or or necessarily family-based activities, but what do you want to be known for later in life and how are we going to go after them? And that's, are you going to go and climb Mount Everest? Not something that's in my repertoire or interests, to be honest, but actually, do you want to go and be a good father? You touched on it earlier, father, grandfather and, and business leader. Those are the things that I think are key to understanding who you are and where you need to get to for for the next phase whatever that be in work or business life
0: yeah and you more than anybody who almost had it ending your life um know how short it can be and so you know my father was killed at 33 his brother at 29 he was killed in an air crash with the the inventor of the helicopter he was flying for the inventor uh grandfather flew into a hillside in a bristol blenheim during the Second World War, Uh, he was an inventor working for the war office. And then, you know, my brother died a couple of years ago. It suddenly happens to us that you haven't got all this time. So what I've personally taken from that, and this is about you, it's not about me, but just sharing what I find helpful, is to have something that if I've got a week left or a year left, I'm still living it today. So for me, it's inspiring leadership. Inspiring leadership, finding inspiring leaders like you and passing on the knowledge to others, learning from you, reading about it, but inspiring leadership in those that I meet, whether it be in my grandchildren, with my wife, uh, with my daughters, with my stepson, my stepdaughter, Um, and particularly with the clients that I work with and their teams. So if I can make a difference on that particular day, if my number is up that evening, I've got a legacy. And, and, of course, you're dead, so you won't care about it anyway. But but if you've made a difference to the people you're around, that's important. Um, last couple of questions, and then we'll go on to your, your top tip, and I'll ask you to introduce yourself and share your top tip now. Um, you've been in various different teams. You've created teams um, in business and in the military. What do you do when you've got a bad apple that's made the team go toxic? How have you dealt with that?
1: Well, bad apple make the lot stale. So you've mm. got to you've got to take it out. And it's difficult removing, especially if you've got a cohesive team. And the more cohesive the team, the harder the challenge it is to, to move that individual or those individuals out. And it might be that you need to restructure not just your team, but the teams around you to make it to make it more of a sort of a, a reshuffle. Um bad apples, toxicity. And everything that goes with it, you've got to remove them. You've got to take it out, and you've got to have a plan in place, a robust plan in place, with a very clear and unambiguous message as to why that is happening. Because uh, communication will fall foul, and and will probably question the leadership that's gone with the decision. So make, making a making a decision, st- sticking by it, and then communicating as to why is got to, it's got to be uh, is got to be fundamental when making significant change.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's so important. You really struck me with the, the the why people have to have a clear, burning why things are happening. Because often, if you've got the the white collar psychopath in your team, um, they quite cleverly um, rubbish the organization and the leader who uh, you know, and and you end up covered in shite, where they're looking like they're a savior and they've just been victimized and it's not fair. But actually, they've been the one doing it, and and so you're you can be ghosted if you're not careful. So it is important to have the why. And these days I've come across a number of psychopaths who've managed to move on every two years from an organization with a compromise agreement and a huge payout. They actually end up being paid twice their salary to go. It's almost like a way of life for some of these people that they can make a lot of money making a lot of people unhappy. So so watch out for those kind of people. And I'm always wary of the sort of compromise agreement. Where we, we, oh, you know, they left for 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 health reasons or family reasons. You know? No, they were a complete shit. And and we, I, you can't say that they're a complete shit, but but just their values and ours did not align. It's not a right fit. And we're helping them find their happiness elsewhere because it's not here. Um, favorite book, Nick, what's a, your favorite book on leadership and why would you recommend people listen to it? Because uh, you and I are a big audio book people, but listen to it or, or read it if they're not dyslexic.
1: Well, we touched on this uh, uh, previously, and there's a book by a gentleman called Geoffrey Wellham called First Light. Uh, it's about being a young 17 year old trainee pilot, Spitfire pilot, during the Second World War. And it talks about, you know, he was part of the greatest generation. Um mm-hmm. And it covers extreme emotional and psychological pressures that he goes through uh, at such a young age overcomes the challenges um uh, and then leads a normal life post the excitement of his earlier years and it's a really insightful book really well documented it's not a difficult read um it's a little bit jovial in the early fa- in early phases it gets quite serious uh, during obviously the the, the the intensity of the work that they conducted, but I'd really recommend the first light by Jeffrey Wellham. It's a good, it's a great book.
0: I will look it up, and in return, I will recommend to you another one that you'd enjoy, Piece of Cake, uh, which is again about Spitfire and Hurricane pilots. And just uh, I've been, uh, I had my friend uh, Errol from Jamaica and General Himalaya from Nepal, who were in my platoon 43 years ago. And uh, a, a lovely guy, Mike Ainsworth, the squadron leader, took us around the battlefields here, including the bomber command. Uh, they got up near Lincoln, which is a, a great memorial to the guys. 68,000 people were killed flying the bombers across to Germany, just from Britain. 68,000 people. You just have no idea of how, how how few of them made it through. And, um, but the the story of these young men uh, and the courage they showed at such a young age it really sticks with me. Right, um, so Nick, uh, for your two-minute top tip, would you introduce yourself, just mentioning briefly your your service and now what you're doing, and give us your practical two-minute leadership tip, and that'll end us nicely.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. So, hi, I'm Nick Garland. Uh, I work for a company called CDW. I'm a former army officer. And my top tips for leadership are two things, really. Say yes more. It's really difficult to say. uh, It's really difficult to say. Sorry, it's really easy to say no. And we say no also often. But yes opens up opportunities and yes opens up an opportunity for further conversation and a further dialogue. And equally. Empathy. Be full of empathy for people. People will make and break a business. They'll make and break decisions. And they'll also give you the support that you need as and when you need it. The receptionist is, is is as important as the managing director on many
0: occasions. That's it from me. Well, Nick, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on the Inspire Leadership Podcast. Thank you for your service to your uh, king, your queen at the time, and your country, Queen's Dragoon Guards. Are you now the King's Dragoon Guards? They get changed, or is it no, just no, no, always no. stays, always keeps it? You don't have to keep changing it. That's right. I remember that. But thank you for your service uh, as an officer of the Queen's Dragoon Guards. And uh, I'm so relieved that you you came back from that horrendous injury, but you still are living with it. And thank you for all that you do for uh, Walking with the Wounded and Help for Heroes um, as an ambassador for them. So great having you on the podcast. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know so they also benefit too please subscribe rate and review us on your podcast platform we value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website jonathanperks.com where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter you can also follow us on linkedin instagram twitter and facebook I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye.